Raised to Walk Podcast, Episode 20. Welcome to the Raised to Walk Podcast, where we're walking out the life of faith. Romans 6, verse 4 reads, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And this show is designed to help you do just that. Now here's your host, Carla Alvarez. Thanks for joining me today for the Race to Walk podcast. And today I'm going to be talking about um, a passage in Genesis 33, which is an account of Jacob and his brother Esau. So this passage is an interesting one. It's an account of Jacob's return to the land God promised to Abraham after Jacob had been sojourning with Laban for 20 years, and that is given in Genesis 31, verse 41. It seems to me that during all this time, up until this point, Jacob had been riding on the faith of his fathers. Yes, he had an experience at Bethel on his way to Padam Aram, and that is recounted in Genesis 28, 5, and that was where he would meet his wives and make his fortune where he saw God in a vision and the dream of of the stairway to heaven. God gave him the promise that he would be with him, but even after that, Jacob's response was one of questioning and a little uncertainty. And so from Genesis 28, it says, Then Jacob made this vow, If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, And if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. His response wasn't one of awesome, let's go. He said, if God prospers me and does what he said he will do, then I will serve him and he will be my God. Faith is trusting that God will do what he says before you see the outcome. It's knowing what it will come to pass because God said it. Jacob's response was not one of faith. Then you know the story. He went to to his uncle, fell in love with his cousin Rachel, worked seven years to earn the right to marry her, was then tricked into marrying Leah, her sister, and then worked an additional seven years for Rachel again. And that's from Genesis 29 verses 14 through 30. Even though he was family, his status was basically one of a hired hand. He had no personal wealth or resources. Then he bargained with Laban to earn his own flocks, and there was the funny business of the spotted and speckled flops that they agreed would be Jacob's, and that was from Genesis thirty twenty-five through 33. Right after they made the agreement, Laban took the existing spotted and speckled flocks and hid them. Jacob did some manipulating of his own as well. He only bred the strongest used to the spotted and speckled rams, and then there was the thing about the striped birch branches in the water when the ewes were mating. He was up against impossible odds. Now, obviously, that was the belief that what the sheep saw when they were mating affected the coats of the lambs. I thought this was odd until I researched the genetics behind the color of a sheep's coat color. It is also abundantly clear that Jacob did not have faith that God would bless him because he felt like he had to make God's promise come about through his own works. This is why he put the speckled branches in the water. 
That whole interaction between Laban and Jacob was one of manipulation. Jacob was a good workhorse for him, and Laban didn't want to lose him. So he agreed to the terms Jacob suggested that on a solely natural basis would have been set up for him to fail. The gene that determines the spotting is one that in the most simple terms says whether spotting will be on or off. The on is a recessive gene. And if you go to the this episode's article at racetowalk.org slash 20, I have a link to an article that gives more detail about the genetics of a sheep's coat. It's really an awesome read. So reading the study of the genetics involved in determining the coat of a sheep made me realize just how much God had a hand in Jacob's success. The spotting itself is recessive, but Laban even changed the type of spotting pattern that he agreed Jacob could claim, and this is in Genesis 31, 5-9. This frustration, this double dealing by Laban, was God training Jacob to put his trust solely in God. Imagine someone gives you a situation where you are set up for failure, but God turned it around, defying the odds of genetics to prosper Jacob. Then Laban sees that and changes the terms, and again God prospers Jacob. Again and again and again this happened. Laban changed the terms ten times. And that's recorded in Genesis 31, 41. Every single time God came through. To understand how just how miraculous that was, just go and, and visit the site and read the article on the coat patterns. God was proving to Jacob that he could trust in him to do what he said he would do. By the time Jacob was ready to leave for Canaan, there was not a lot of trust between the two men for very obvious reasons. He even took Rachel and Leah out in a field to talk to them about it so that it wouldn't be overheard. They left when Laban was away. When he caught up to them, there was a confrontation between Jacob and Laban. Laban tried to claim credit for everything Jacob had, basically saying, I made you, showing a complete lack of appreciation for all of the labor and the effort Jacob had put into Laban's flocks. Jacob said, I took responsibility for sheep that were lost regardless of the circumstances. The quote-unquote hired hand was bearing the expense of the loss from the flocks that weren't even his own. And that's from Genesis 31, 38 through 39. Then Jacob said, you changed my wages ten times, but God still prospered me. Did Laban finally get it? Did he recognize how much he had used and taken advantage of Jacob? No. No, he didn't. They made peace. But even though Laban had received a message from God about it, Laban's parting shot was, everything you have came from me, but I'll let you keep it. So going back to Esau, he and Jacob were twins, and there was a lot of sibling rivalry. Esau was a jock that his father loved best, and Rachel loved Jacob because he hung out at home with her. It also sounds like Esau was impetuous and obviously didn't think through things. He sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew, some bargain that was. He also compounded his situation by marrying wives his parents didn't approve of and and whom they couldn't stand. Jacob added salt to the wound by stealing Esau's blessing through trickery. Then Jacob left town. He followed his parents' instructions to find a wife from their own people by going to his uncle Laban. This takes us back up to his dream of the stairway to heaven and then the whole saga with his uncle Laban. So 
Esau had every right to have hard feelings toward Jacob. Jacob had maneuvered him out of his birthright and blessing, and he didn't saddle his parents with daughters-in-laws that they couldn't stand. God had told Jacob to go back to Canaan, and he did it. This was also his first show of faith. He was walking back into a situation where, for all he knew, Esau still wanted to kill him. Jacob prayed to God. He reminded God of his promise to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, as well as the promises God had made to him. And then this is from Genesis 32, 9-12. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, if you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promise me I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promise me I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sounds along the seashore, too many to count. Just compare this response, his prayer to God, with the first one when he was going into into his journey where he it was really almost one of arrogance and condition saying well if God does this then I will here it was a humility and a submission to God an acknowledgement of the goodness of God and how completely unworthy the, the he was and how we, unworthy we all are for that that mercy is a complete change so Jacob sent his flocks ahead of his as a peace offering to Esau. He divided up his wives and his remaining flocks and wealth into two separate groups, so if one was killed, the other would escape. Then the night before he met Esau, he sent them all out, and he stayed alone in the camp. He got alone with God and got real, literally, and God showed up. Jacob wrestled with a man, and he would not let him go until the man blessed him. Afterwards, he said he had met God face to face. He had come face to face with the Messiah, with Christ, who is a visible image of the invisible God. And he's referencing that as Colossians one fifteen through twenty, John one eighteen, John six forty six, and Exodus thirty three nineteen through twenty three. After you have wrestled with God, what is a mere man? And some verses that go with that are Psalms one eighteen six, Hebrews thirteen six, and Psalm fifty four. 4 through 6. And also Proverbs 29:25 says fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When I look back over Jacob's story, yes, he manipulated, but he was also subject to manipulation and tolerated it. He went along with his mother's scheme for getting Esau's birthright. His whole stay with Laban was one long string of manipulative situations. And then he gets ready to face Esau. Most of the commentary I read about their encounter is one where people say, Oh, Esau forgave him and was glad to have his brother back. I don't think that is what it was. So Jacob had the birthright and the blessing. He was head of the family, his father's heir. Jacob came and wanted to escort Jacob back to Sarah. 
Jacob said that the flock and the children were too young and that they would follow along behind at a slower pace and meet him there. This is in Genesis 32:12-16. But Jacob didn't go there. They went and sent to Sukkoth and then on to Shechem where they made their home. They didn't go to Sarah at all. They stayed completely away from, from where Esau was established. If Jacob had returned to his homeland under the guidance or guard of Esau, that would have given Esau a hand in his return. He would have been able to say, you wouldn't have made it back if it weren't for me, just as Laban tried to tell him that everything Jacob owned was his. What would Jacob's position in the community have been if he had returned under his brother's wing, even if it was benevolent? Would he have ever been seen as the leader? I don't think he would have. So this reminded me of a sermon by Robert Morris of Gateway Church, which touches on the relationship between Jonathan and David. In the article for this episode, I have it, uh, a link to it. Again, that's at raisetowalk.org slash 20. So in the video, he talks about, um, it's basically about manipulation, but he talks about Jonathan and David. And people always present that as, this illustration of this great friendship. He doesn't really agree. He sees Jonathan's actions as motivated by manipulation, one of playing both sides of the fence. If Saul came out on top, Jonathan would be king, and that was in 1 Samuel twenty-three fifteen through 18. If David prevailed, Jonathan would be number two, because Jonathan got David to basically promise that to him. So Jonathan gets David to promise him all this protection and everything, but then it didn't, he didn't promise the same way. Jonathan was continually betraying David. This is stated in Psalm 41, 1 through 13, and Psalm 55, 1 through 23. But David honored his oath all along in spite of it. So if you go to the video, it's actually the title of it, if you're just searching on YouTube without going to the Race to Walk site, it's called Stop Tolerating the Jezebel Spirit by Robert Morris. And the part about David and Jonathan starts at the 20-minute mark. I think the same motivation was behind Esau's greeting. One thing that I've learned about manipulators is that they think that if they have a part in or even just are around something that they can take credit for for it all they think it is all because of them that if it hadn't they hadn't been there it wouldn't have happened manipulators always take credit this is the other thing about manipulators they have no true appreciation further than what they can use of other people's gifts and abilities and what they bring to the table this is a fact that's taken me a long time to learn. Just as Laban had no appreciation for what Jacob had done for him, if you do something for someone who is under the influence of the spirit of manipulation, it will never be appreciated. Ever. It doesn't mean that you ne- shouldn't necessarily do it. You need to ask God about it. But recognize that the only appreciation you will get for that is from God. You will never get it from them. Because in that person's mind, they made or caused you to do it. The possibility that you did it for altruistic reasons will never occur to them. If you've ever had someone jump into a project, make needless changes, throwing a wrench in things, it could be because they have no sense, but it could also be possible that they are operating in a spirit of manipulation and control, and they think that if they stick their fingers into the pie, even if it makes a mess, 
then they can think that they made it happen, the outcome is all because of them. Another illustration of this is in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city, and that's in Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. There is a lot of political drama, and the Samaritans were coming to him saying that they wanted to help in the project. And that's in Nehemiah 2, 9 through 10. They say they want to help, but they really want to be involved so they can sabotage it. Nehemiah tells them, no, you have no place in this. They had nothing to do with Jerusalem, and he was not going to allow them to gain any sort of authority or foothold or right over the city by letting them participate in the rebuilding. And that's in Nehemiah two sixteen through 20. So that's true unless, of course, the outcome is a failure. Then the manipulator will blame it on you, just as Laban made Jacob responsible for the losses in the flock. The same is true of relationships. Have you ever had a friend that had to jump in the middle of every single other friendship you had and then try to make themselves the focal point of it? And then they think that the entire relationship was only because of them because they brought it about. That's evidence of manipulation. So what Esau was really trying to do was jump in the middle of Jacob's blessing. Jacob went from getting pulled into manipulative situations continually to standing firm against an attempt by Esau to gain standing through association with him. If he hadn't had his encounter with God the night before, I don't think he would have had the fortitude to withstand the need for acceptance by his brother. And I think this illustrates the fact that we have to choose our associations carefully. Jacob moved to another location so that no one could claim credit for his family and accomplishments. Another illustration of the potential pitfalls of association is the account of Paul and Silas and the slave girl in Philippi in Acts 16. The girl foretold futures and was under the influence of a spirit of divination. When Paul and Silas came to town, she went along beside them, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. She was trying to gain credibility by coming alongside of them and appearing to be associated with them. I say she, but it was actually the strategy of the demonic spirit she was under the influence of. The spirit knew Paul and Silas were of God and tried to leverage that God-given authority through deceptive manipulation. This went on until Paul got sick of it and cast the demon out of the girl. And then this in turn got them into trouble with her masters because it cost them money because she couldn't make uh, money for them anymore by her fortune telling. But it isn't unbelievers that we have to be most careful of. It's actually fellow Christians that can get us into the most trouble because it's harder to spot. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this. There had been a big uproar in the church. He had taken them to task because they were tolerating a man in the church who was living in sexual immorality. And Paul told them to turn him over to Satan so that he could repent and his soul would be saved. And that's in 1 Corinthians 5.5. At the end of chapter 5, Paul clarifies how careful we are to be about our associations. And this is a quote from 1 Corinthians 5.9-12. He said, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. 
But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in se- sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worship I- worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil people from among you. Those are pretty harsh words. What makes it hard is that, as Christians, we know we are all sinners saved by grace. We all have our warts and blemishes that we are walking out through the sanctification process. The Bible stresses unity and fellowship between believers. We all know this. What Paul is addressing here is not the everyday mistakes we make. He is talking about when a believer is flagrantly persisting in sin, something contrary to the Holy Spirit, and refuses to even admit that it is wrong and repent. So, you know, sometimes somebody can know something's wrong and they can struggle with it. I think you have to support someone and encourage them in maintaining the fight to have victory over that area but there's there's completely different situation when someone refuses to examine their own heart and allow the holy spirit to convict them of the areas in their life that need to be worked out when they refuse all attempts at, at correction then you as a believer are instructed to disassociate like jacob you need to relocate and remove yourself from the situation Sometimes that seems hard-hearted. Sometimes those of us with codependent tendencies think we can fix them, that we can help them see the error of their ways and help them change. What I've learned through painful experience is that it just doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way because, as my pastor says, it's a spiritual problem, not an information problem. Continuing to reason with them will not work. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. If they are a Christian and they refuse to see it once it has been pointed out to them, it's because they are being deceived by a demonic spirit, until they allow the Holy Spirit to convict them to repentance and they are delivered from it. Throwing more words at the situation will not help. It just won't. Staying in the situation and in fellowship with them will not help. It will actually make things worse because you are coming into a tacit agreement with that spirit and allowing it not only to build a stronger stronghold in that person's life, but in your own life as well. We are influenced by those we associate with. And this is, you can reference Proverbs twenty two twenty four in that. Even if we personally don't start modeling those behaviors ourselves we will become inured to it if we are constantly around something we know is wrong eventually it will stop seeming wrong to us we won't even notice it anymore our conscience will become seared then we will be in the same position as the person we thought we were going to help and be in need of the intervention of the Holy Spirit ourselves to awaken our conscience again. All you can do in situations like that, when it's gotten to that point, is separate and pray for them. 
People like to quote Matthew 18, 18 a lot, and they usually focus on the binding part. It sounds pretty exciting to go around binding things. So this is a verse. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. But most people ignore the second part. Whatever you allow on earth will be allowed in heaven. If we tolerate things that we know aren't right, that aren't in line with God's will, or that is contrary to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we are allowing those spirits contrary to God to gain ground. Sometimes spiritual warfare is about setting good boundaries and standing firm. And one of my favorite verses is Luke twenty-one nineteen: By standing firm, you will win your souls. So thank you for joining me today, and I hope this has been an encouragement to you. For links to the references I've mentioned in this episode, you can visit raisedtowalk.org slash 20. Let's end this time with a prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you came and died for us so that we could stand firm and have victory over the enemy. And I ask that you help each one of us listening to recognize in our own lives whatever area where there may be a situation of manipulation or control that we need to be able to stand against. And help us to be able to stand firm, but stand firm in love, and to be a witness to the freedom that we can have in Christ. And I thank you that you gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to be our counselor and our comforter and help help us to be able to listen more carefully, to hear your voice more clearly, and give us the willingness to follow you, Lord. And I ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Raised to Walk podcast. We'd love for you to continue to walk with us, so head over to raisedtowalk.org slash news to get free updates. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time. If you've been enjoying the Raised to Walk episodes, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We also love to get feedback from our listeners, so tell us what you think by either rating or reviewing us on iTunes or Stitcher, or by sending us an email at contact at raisetowalk.org. We're excited to have you join us again next time for another episode of Raised to Walk.